The views expressed in this program are those of the participants. As they hoisted me up into the helicopter, I screamed, the pain moving into the realm of sheer agony. Without a pause, they slid my caught head first into the warm chopper, like a coffin into a funeral truck. Mountie 019 buckled up in the seat beside me, all the while watching me intently. His gaze wasn't one of a guard watching his prisoner. Instead, his eyes looked confused and bewildered, as if asking, how did a kid like you end up in such a mess? The answer, of course, involved a woman. At 28, some would say she was just a girl, and she would say that such juvenile labels were part of the grand plan to keep adults behaving like easy-to-manipulate children. She was certainly not a child, and in as little as six months, between her and this so-called pandemic, I had been forced to grow up real fast. Welcome everyone. It is Thursday, February the 23rd, 2023. I'm Bob Metz, and this is Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. Join us for an hour of discussion that's not right-wing, it's Just Right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be Our show opener today tells a tale that reflects the proverbial red pill being swallowed by an increasing number of people as their experience awakens them to a reality that is no longer in sync with the reality they thought they were living in. And more significantly, our show opener today has been taken from the audiobook version of a 500-page fictional novel called Much Ado About Corona, a dystopian love story. And joining us today is the author of that book, John C. Manley. Welcome to the show, John. It's an honor to be here. And it's great to have you. And our discussion will begin right after our reminder that you can write us at feedback at justrightmedia.org. Hear us on WBCQ and on Channel 292 Shortwave. Follow and like us on your favorite podcast platform and visit us at justrightmedia.org where you can access all of our social media links, archive broadcasts, and the support button that makes it easy for you to support the show, because as always, your financial support is appreciated and is what makes this show possible. Well, welcome to the show, John. And I invited you to be our guest because you've done something quite novel. You wrote one. And not only that, it's your first novel. Am I correct about that? First published one, yes. Well, it's an amazing story. And just to give people an idea of what it's about, just a quick overview, which shows up on the back cover of the book, describes the story as a novel about real love and a fake pandemic. (laughs) Perfectly described. (laughs) And you describe it as summer 2020. The first lockdown has ended in the small Canadian town of Moosehead, which is fictional, I understand, is it? It is, yeah. (laughs) 24-year-old Vincent McKnight emerges from three months of stay-at-home orders into a surreal new normal of multicolored face masks, accurate hand sanitizers, and germaphobic neighbors standing six feet apart. The new normal becomes even stranger when Vince's indigenous grandfather sends him to buy a loaf of bread from the town's new baker. Stephanie Mueller speaks five languages, has beautiful blue eyes, and is a certified conspiracy theorist. Yeah, just like me. She, <laughs> she believes the pandemic is a hoax to justify totalitarian, quote-unquote, public health measures. 
But when the local cop pulls out his taser, Stephanie's dystopian premonitions no longer seem so theoretical. And when the restrictions threatened granddad's life, Vince finds himself going face to mask with the emerging police state. Forced to choose whether to follow senseless rules or to follow his pounding heart, end quote. Interesting that you didn't say or follow his principles or do the right thing. You said follow his pounding heart. And I think that's perhaps the state of mind that many people are in when they first take action, you know, that's apart from the crowd. Is that kind of how you felt even going into all of this? And what made you write this kind of a book in the first place? Well, I think that a lot of the reason um, people end up doing the right thing is it stems a lot from love either for family members, people that are close to them, their friends, the community, which I think is one of the reasons why they attack that pretty early on with a lot of their agenda, but especially the COVID agenda. So I think on a deeper level, a lot of people really realize that going along with these measures was wrong, but they were scared not to go along with them. So the pounding heart could kind of go both ways. It was kind of, you know, where you feel love and fear at the same time. Now, right now I'm in the middle of your book, Much Ado About Corona, and I'm actually glad I haven't finished reading it yet as of our conversation today since I won't be able to pull a spoiler on anybody and because I still have the rest of the book to look forward to. But at the same time, I'm glad I'm halfway through because I feel comfortable enough to say, John, you're a really talented writer. And this book, Much Ado About Corona, is about a lot more than just a love story, isn't it? (laughs) I'd say it's much more than just a love story, and it's much more than just corona, too. Oh, absolutely. I just wanted to cite a couple of the endorsements that you've received for your book, and you've got a lot of them. But before I do that, first let me thank you for including this show, Just Right, among the many references in your six pages of websites exposing the truth about COVID-19 that you have in the back of the book. And that's one of the things that makes the book very different. You've listed them all in alphabetical order, and I noticed that Just Right falls between the Justice Center for Constitutional (laughs) Freedom and Laura Lynn Tyler Thompson. And I would note that among the 50 or so websites that you listed there were Rebel News, The True North, The Stu Peters Show, The German Coronavirus Investigative Committee, Druthers, America's Frontline Doctors, The Foundation for Economic Education, InfoWars, Dr. Vernon Coleman, Dennis Rancour, and then on the comedy and music front even, you cited Awaken with JP and Five Times August. The book also includes four pages of acknowledgments to specific individuals, as well as a list of books exposing the COVID-19 agenda, your own bio, and that of your cover illustrator, Jordan Henderson, and much more. So how did you manage to get all those endorsements before you even had the book written (laughs) or published? I've always wondered how how writers do that. Oh, okay. Um, Well, just to say, too, I kind of saw the book as a kind of a gateway for a lot of people, so that's why I did put so many of those websites at the end. A lot of people are probably not even aware that, you know, there's this whole other alternative world out there of information and news and media. So um, I'm hoping the book is a gateway for quite a lot of people to realize that, you know, in, in the fact sure. you think there's something wrong with the world, there is something wrong with the world. Um, but yeah, as far as I got that, I, I actually finished the novel um, one year before it was published, the original version, which was only 100,000 words, only. <laughs> so about 300 pages, and I sent it to... 
about 35 beta readers, most of whom are acknowledged in the back of the book. So I sent it to doctors, I sent it to OPP officers, RCMP, nurses, two Catholic priests. I wanted to run it past people who were represented in the story to make sure that I accurately reflected them and whether they had other ideas. So in the process of doing that, they were very happy with the novel and uh, you know I didn't solicit it from them but they just you know supplied those comments usually in an email oh, or something excellent. I said well can I quote you that'd be great wonderful well here's a couple of the testimonials this is from retired constable Leland Keane RCMP I enjoyed much ado about corona immensely the police interaction was bang on and the subtleties are not so subtle and portray an authentic realism to me Constable McKenzie is a tragic character. Now I'm just getting to that point where I'm starting to learn about Constable McKenzie. <laughs> and this one from Patrick Corbett, former director, producer for W5, The Beachcombers, and Dateline. Quote, sometimes fiction is the best way to get the truth across. Shakespeare and Charles Dickens knew that, and so does John C. Manley. He has crafted a ripping story of courage, awakening, and love with some good laughs thrown in. All in the time of COVID. As with the truth, you won't want to put much ado about Corona down. And then finally, from a mutual acquaintance and friend of ours, Andrew Brannon, who is a ICU nurse. And he wrote, I felt there was no more data I could absorb about COVID-19 without going crazy. Hence, it was refreshing to read a page-turning fictional account. Living in a profession where so few seem to see the horrors we're participating in, reading Much Ado About Corona was a cathartic experience. Those are quite incredible statements, and I have to say that that's exactly how I'm feeling reading the book. And as I go through the story, I realize how this experience has affected so many different people in their lives. Mm. I've been surprised. I've had so many people write that I wasn't expecting, saying how they found it almost therapeutic reading the story. Yeah. Having gone through what was a very, very scary time. Not that we were scared of, you know, a pandemic, but that we were scared of, I think, two things. One, how quickly government suddenly turned into the um, metaphorical monster who, you know, you know, we thought he was a human being and then he ripped off the mask and we saw there was this lizard yeah, creature. Yeah. You know, that's what it felt like, especially in a country like Canada, where we thought this was the most peaceful country in the world. And now we have the government going around stopping people from meeting in their own homes. Well, it's even scarier when you think that we discovered a lot of our own family members might have been weird. You know, a lot of families found themselves split up uh, over the silliest things. Well, that was the point I was actually thinking was that's what I think what shocked us more was, at least myself, is just how quickly the majority of people went along with us, blindly, instantly. You know, people that I'd used to see on the street and, you know, every day, you know, people would even give me a hug. We're now walking on the opposite side of the street because of social distancing and how quickly they were able to be reprogrammed, which made me realize the programming had started a long, long time ago. And it was almost like, you know, just the final piece of instruction to activate it was put in because I had no idea why people would uh, take this seriously. I thought everyone was going to laugh at it and think it was a joke. Yeah, too bad. It's not a joke. (laughs) In my experience, if you want to have plausible explanations of history, uh, the best uh, uh, explainers of current events or the most accurate prognosticators of future events, particularly in a sort of template, mm. look to fiction, look right. to screenwriters and look to novelists. Right. Because they have to sit there and figure out, OK, how do I sell a story that sounds credible, right. that seems authentic? 
that right. if somebody tests it, whether it's a heist or national security or military or some event, somebody's not going to pick it apart and say, you idiot, you don't understand guns. You idiot, you don't understand this. They that they have to really become experts in their little Oh, field. yeah, yeah. That's why I'm a know-it-all on all these stupid things because I've just had to do these deep dives my whole screenwriting life. And you always have to be one second ahead in time in terms of industrialization and crime and all kinds of stuff. You got to be five years ahead when you're writing it. Otherwise, people go, yeah, I read that in the paper today, bro. What's the big deal? So yeah. by natural instinct and design creatively, you have to be in the future. That's why they rounded up all the top screenwriters in Hollywood and brought them down to USC after 9-11 to come up with. Remember this? Remember this secret program, Robert? They yeah, Melter was in that too, right? Yes, yes. They took all the top screenwriters downtown and they said, we want you to come up with scenarios, not for movies, but stuff the terrorists might come up with in the future. These were not movie ideas. They were using their type of creative thinking to tap into it, the intelligence agencies, to see where they would go. So they'd have all of these plausible ideas up on the big board, Robert for themselves going, that's right, this guy Goldstein said they may attack with a herd of sheep one day with bombs in their ass. How about that one, Sarge? You know what I mean? Oh, There's and, another and advantage, I, too, because they're not limited by professionalism. And I mean oh. that seriously, because if you get intelligence agents, how would you attack? They would refer to their training. Oh, yeah. So if you want to think outside the box, you've got to get somebody from the outside who is unpredictable is going to think in a different way and view the world from the outside who may be attacking. Right. And my the additional guy, the guy who run, uh, read, uh, wrote Hunt for Red October, remember, who was the guy? The, the, Tom uh, Clancy. Clancy was funded in his first book by the Office of Naval Intelligence. I mean, you can't get a better example than Clancy. You know, he was an ONI picked. They literally bought his manuscript, his half-assed written manuscript, and paid him for it, and then he was you know, their butt boy for O&I for the rest of his career. I also think they often look to successful fiction for ideas to implement because these guys are not real. Oh, yes. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. They, they read like, OK, what is Condor doing in six days of the Condor, which became three days of the Condor in the movie? The novel Six Days of the Condor was just too long for Hollywood. So they chopped off three <laughs> days to save money. That's a side issue. He reads books. He reads books looking for coded messages in the books and uncovers a CIA rogue plot to invade uh, Middle East fields and seize the oil. How far ahead of time was that, Robert? By the time Orwell married Sonia Brownell, 1984 was written, after which he would never leave his bed again. But he left one final warning. 1984 is, I believe, a quite terrifying masterpiece. So terrifying, in fact, I don't think I should like to read another like it. I'm not absolutely dissatisfied with it. I think it is a good idea, but the execution would have been better if I had not been under the influence of TB when I wrote it. You once claimed that you have an ability to face unpleasant facts. Is that what you've demonstrated in 1984 by drawing an accurate portrait of the future? I think that allowing 
for the book being, after all, a parody, something like 1984 could actually happen. This is the direction the world is going in at the present time. In our world, there will be no emotions except fear, rage, triumph and self-abasement. The sex instinct will be eradicated. We shall abolish the orgasm. There will be no loyalty except loyalty to the party. But always there will be the intoxication of power. Always, at every moment, there will be the thrill of victory, the sensation of trampling on an enemy who is helpless. If you want a picture of the future, imagine a boot stamping on a human face forever. The moral to be drawn from this dangerous nightmare situation is a simple one. Don't let it happen. It depends on you. So, it depends on us. Well, that's a sobering warning to hear in 2023. John, you think it's too late for us to prevent 1984 from happening? No, not at all. Otherwise, I wouldn't have bothered writing the book. Well, that's an interesting thought, and it's a positive thing to hear. I'm glad to hear it. What makes you say that? Why Why do you have that optimism at a time when so many people seem not to have it? Because the alternative is wouldn't allow me to sleep at night to not have that optimism. I mean, part of what I was really, uh, with the novel itself, I wasn't so much trying to expose the lies. Like the novel does that to a large degree. But I, I think to a large degree, most people, other than maybe 20% of the population, realize as, as far as the corona scam went, that it was a scam. And they, at different levels, were aware that this wasn't legitimate. They were just too scared to do anything about it or afraid to go against the herd. So that's why the characters in the novel, I was trying to represent people who were willing to follow what they knew was true. And despite the fact that the majority of the population was telling them that they're not only just crazy. I mean, we were being told that I have personally been told that I'm just um, a selfish person for, you know, not wanting to wear a face mask or not wanting to get vaccinated. You know, the, the list goes well, on. Well, ironically, in, a, in the good sense of that term, you are, and we all are. Yeah. And, you and know? The, <laughs> We're looking after our self-interest. And I would, I would even say I'm even looking at the self-interest of keeping society in a, you know, in a, well, a functional state. I mean, to what they are doing is the, everything they're doing is such a lie that it's, um, it, it's frustrating because they're trying to make, you know, in novel writing, they often say that the greatest evil is when the evil is made to look good. And yes. I think that's exactly what we've had happen here. Well, that's how evil always passes as the good. So I'm reading this story and I'm wondering how much of this story is a slice of your life or is it something completely away from your own personal experience or just something you've picked up from the whole zeitgeist? Oh, it's quite a mix. I, the scenes in the nursing home are very uh, personal for me just because my father was in a retirement home during the whole COVID scam. And he actually died in there after his uh, booster oh, yeah. shot. Because I, I, I've, I've seen firsthand as much as I could until they put us in lockdown 
what was happening in that nursing home. I mean, with our particular the nursing home my father was in, the, the military was brought in because the conditions were so bad there. And I knew it had nothing to do with a virus. Even the, the mainstream, to some degree, has shown how bad things were in the nursing homes because of the restrictions. But I felt that with the novel, and actually, especially when you get into part three, when Vince actually gets into the nursing home during the lockdown, which is a pivotal point in the novel because he has to break so many rules to just visit his granddad. Yeah, that's the part during, I'm at right now. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that, I, I, I get so much mail from people saying that they cry through um, those chapters that are coming up. And I don't think just hearing about senior citizens were neglected during the COVID mandates enough to, uh, or even statistics, you know, seeing it in a story format allows people to feel it emotionally. Yes. Because that's, I think, how the left, to a large degree, has controlled most of the population. They use story, story affects emotions. And once you got people emotionally geared in one direction, you can manipulate them pretty easily. Well, I know that was one of the things that zeroed you in on this show because you noticed that we were using a lot of fictional accounts and and clips from TV shows and radio plays and other discussions. And it's interesting, I noticed that Ken McCarthy of Brass Check TV wrote about your book, Five Stars. If this book came out in 2019, people would call it unrealistic and exaggerated. Can this be dystopian fiction when it describes the world we're in? Then he says, the first novel about life under the authoritarian corona hysteria. And that's what got my attention, too. I've been waiting for, let's just say, the broader entertainment community in general, mm-hmm. you know, to catch on to this latest period that we're in in history. Because even as I look, you know, if I watch old TV shows and stuff, they all seem so unrealistic. Nobody's wearing a mask. <laughs> you know, everybody's still acting normal in all the plays and, and the music and everything. But now we're seeing that culture of COVID come forth. Uh, are there any books, other books besides your own that you're aware of that might have been doing something close to what you're doing? Not in the uh, vein that I was doing it. I, it's interesting. I've heard several interviews with fairly famous novelists at this time, and they actually preferred to pretend COVID didn't exist when they were writing their novels in the present day. All right. Because they found it was just, uh, well, one, it took away from a lot of stories. I've heard of other novelists, though, like I, there's a, I forget her name now, but she uh, kind of writes mystery stories. And she actually did almost the opposite of what I did, where they have a cop was well, set in COVID. There's lockdown. The mystery's happening with all that. They have face masks on everybody. And there's one police officer who won't wear the face mask and he's the bad guy. Mm. So, they, you know, they did the exact opposite where they demonized the they made the evil character the one who's not going along oh, with the yeah. mandates. <laughs> okay. Now, when you sat down to do this book, did you know what the plot was from front end before you started sectioning it out? I really like the way the book is constructed. You've got it in five separate parts. You've got short chapters. They're all, say, three to five pages along, mm-hmm. you know, sections. They all have their separate little headers, making the book easy to read. And the book flows, and it's got some great characterizations. Did you already have the whole synopsis of the book in your mind before you started? Not at all. I, okay, that, that, that catches my attention. How the hell did you write a book like that then without already knowing where you're going? You just, you just flowed with it? Yeah, I mean, you know, they got they, the two types of novelists, are the plotters and the pantsers, and pantsers being someone who writes at the, at the edge of their seat. That's right. why they call it a pantser, and that was me. I actually intended to be a short story that was set in actually 2030, 
And I actually wrote most of that. That took me a, a probably half a year just coming in every day and just I hand wrote the whole thing and I had no idea what the next page was going to be. And then I started doing flashbacks, mixing in flashbacks to that story. And that's actually what that novel is. Actually, the sequel is almost pretty much done because the flashbacks became so big that I realized this was its own story itself. So I started the story in 2020. But it was it was a lot of fun, too, because I'd get to parts in the story where I had no idea how he was going to get out of the situation. But on the on the flip side, too, like I said, once I sent out the beta readers and got more feedback, I did add entire sections to the book mm-hmm. later on. So it, it was basically like a big piece of dough and just constantly molding it and molding it for two years. It took over 1,100 hours of writing and rewriting. Maybe that's why it comes across as being so realistic. It's not like uh, everything happened in the way you would expect. And you said you hand wrote this. The, that, that's a lot of handwriting. I mean... Yeah. And then how, how do you get it published? And, and how, we're going to talk about where everybody can get the book and all that stuff sure. later in the show. But how did you go about getting the book published and um, promoting it? And Yeah, uh, well, it, I, I took it all very seriously, and it was quite expensive. I mean, just to be clear, when I hand-wrote it, I hand-wrote it, then I would transcribe it, sure. and I actually rewrote that draft about yeah. 17 times. And it, I paid two um, freelance editors who were very helpful and actually three I two freelance editors and then one developmental editor after that it was uh, self-published uh, I didn't think any public major publisher in, on this planet would publish this book <laughs> <laughs> really? I, I just couldn't imagine uh, any uh, the, especially the big five publishers I wasn't going to try to get an agent or anything for this it would be hopeless and well you know it, it's blazing pine cone publishing that's my own imprint yes yes and you know I've got a copy of the book in my hand it is a beautifully produced book i mean it feels good it feels the cover is beautiful the pages the print is excellent self-publishing has gone come a long way hasn't it (laughs) no it's a wonderful sign i mean the fact that someone like me who has no company you know per se uh, could produce something like that which i think is on part i think it's on as actually exceeds actually a lot of first published books in the with the mainstream publishers because they usually will just whip something out with some makeshift cover to um, get it out there and see if it works. And I'm very grateful to the cover artist. I mean, he partnered up on me and just is sharing in the royalty. And that was not a small painting by any stretch of the imagination. And we went through hours and hours of <laughs> debate over how the elements in it worked. And there's actually, that's the second cover. There's a previous cover that mm-hmm. we didn't use. Well, for people who are wondering, that'll be the photo that will be accompanying this episode of the show online so they'll get at least a glimpse of it as we go into our next break we're going to be hearing first on this side of our bumper from believe it or not author ray bradbury who speaks on violence laughter and sadness and why we have art to deal with reality no matter what your profession in this world uh you're grabbing onto a piece of reality interpreting it and uh, helping yourself and others to make do, but in the best sense of the word make do. In other words, uh, we are the tension-collecting animals of this world. We are that particular creature in the world who decides to put away violence most of the time. So we put away the fact of violence, um, many kinds of facts that we would act out in the natural world beyond the city, and in order to inhabit cities, 
We put away actions. We save things. We are the only creature in the world that does this. Uh, every other animal acts in the instant to destroy or run from destruction. Uh, we choose not to do so. We build walls, we build cities. And so inside these cities, inside these walls, we need artists, we need people like myself who take hold of a piece of reality and say, this is what it is. Uh, we've saved up attention for tears. So I, as a writer, come along and try to help you to cry at the right time. We save up attention of laughter, perhaps for our silly politicians. I come along as a writer and help you to laugh. Uh, we save up tensions of murdering. Uh, the uh, wonderful fact about civilization is that most people do not murder, uh, that most of us are peace-loving, that we do make do in the best sense. So I come along with a story and enable you for an hour to murder so that the next day you don't have to do it in reality. Uh, Nietzsche puts it beautifully. We have art that we do not uh, uh, die of reality. Reality is too much with us. Uh, I think we know all of the basic facts of life, each of us. Uh, we know too much about death. We know too much about age. We know too much about love that, that sometimes fails us. Uh, people do go away. People do vanish. Uh, friends uh, go off over the world and never come back. Our children finally go out into the world on their own. Uh, all of us finally uh, leave the fact of existence. Now these build all kinds of tensions for us. So what I try to do is go to my typewriter and many days experiment with words to find out what my tension is. Do I need to laugh or cry on a particular day? I don't know. Sometimes I don't know. So I begin to type any word that comes into my mind. The dwarf, the night, the lake, the wind, uh, a time machine. And then say to myself, why have you put that word down there? Uh, why have you written the nursery, for instance, on the typewriter? What kind of nursery? Where? A nursery in the past? No. The present? No. What about the future? What would a nursery be like in the future? Well, it would be automated. It would uh, provide you with an environment, let's say, so that you could go into that nursery and command it to take you to South America or Africa or the North Pole, and suddenly you're surrounded by the three dimensions and color of that environment. All right, put your children in such an environment. Uh, show that environment to the parents. What does this do to the family relationship? And suddenly you're off and flying, all because you dared to put on paper the words, the nursery. You didn't even know the story was in you, but you go with it. For years, he's kept his readers under his spell with his electrifying prose. I'm very proud to present this year's recipient of the Poe's Pen Career Achievement Award, my good friend, Richard Castle. Michael Connolly, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you very much, Michael. And um, my thanks to all of you for this honor. You know, I, I've spent a lot of time in the last few days thinking about how I got here. The long hours, the blank pages, most people think that writing is a solitary profession, that we spend our days in our imaginary worlds fighting 
loving, dying, but we don't do it alone because anything that's good in our writing comes from truth and the truth is I'm here because of the people in my life. You're listening to Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. And we're in studio with John Manley, author of Much Ado About Corona. And we had just heard Ray Bradbury on the other side of that last break, and he made a really fascinating quote taken from Nietzsche. He said, We have art that we do not die of reality. What a profound statement. Is that a sentiment you share? Yeah, it's one of those quotes that makes you almost want to cry. Uh, You'll notice in the novel that it it kind of mixes this um, blend of humor and horror. Absolutely. The horror... Sort of of like our real life right now. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly (laughs) it, which I think is one of the easiest ways to try to deal with it. The the horror in the novel, the the hardness of the novel actually increases as it goes along. You'll see the temperature kind of increasing with each chapter and with each part. I don't think underneath a lot of people are very scared of the virus. I think they're scared of the fact that they believe in the virus, that they believe in the COVID stuff because the alternative is much more horrifying than a virus or a pandemic. It's that your government is lying to you. Oh, absolutely. That is terrifying. Yeah. So I wanted to provide this as some way that they could ease into that reality and not, you know, I think sometimes why people back off with um, the way the right tries to fight this is they hit people too hard where it shocks them. They just just can't go from this rose-colored view they have of their society to the unfortunate reality. I also really like Josh Whedon, who's, he's more, he's a screenwriter. He's a, You've actually just had a clip from Firefly on your show yes, I did. recently. Yeah. Um, he had a great line where he said, make it tough, make it grim, make it dark, but then, for the love of God, tell a joke. Absolutely. And you could see that in the Firefly series because that was dealing with a very tyrannical view of society where the good guys had already lost. And yet the characters, one of the ways they're able to move forward in that series, I thought, was with their humor. And that's largely what I tried to do with this book, too, was not shy away or downplay the horror too much, but to throw in that humorous element with characters who I thought were very down-to-earth and real. Some people were expecting with the novel to be more about, uh, you know, almost a thriller-type thing with CIA agents or, you know, that type of high-level stuff with people above that uh, are apparently going to solve this all like some big QAnon story. And what I ended up doing, you know, I'm setting in a small town with people like you and me that are really what I think break down these oligarchs. You know, you just got a few powerful people, even if it's 2,000, 3,000 powerful people, they're nothing compared to the population of the planet if we just stop going along with it and stop being afraid. It's funny, you talk about the right amount of humor. I noticed he, you had Noah Gray, author of Chameleon, The Virtual Reality, who says, I have high praise for Much Ado about Corona's characterization, pacing, condensed truth, and irony, and just the right amount of humor. Just right. You see, you just yeah. said so. <laughs> the result is both artful and true to our experience, one that will never be forgotten. That's the one thing that got me about this book. It felt very real all the way through. And, and you slide into it, not from the top down, but from the bottom up. You're meeting these very normal people, just going about their lives and listening to everything that's going on, and all of a sudden they find themselves in this weird situation with everything disrupted. 
and humor has to be a part of that. Humor is the way we react quite often to tragedy, too. You know, it's, it's the way we adjust. It seems to reset our emotions. Yes, and it can make uh, a, a difficult point, that, you know, difficult in the terms of accepting it, much more acceptable. And it's one of the reasons we use a lot of humor on this show, no matter how serious the topic is. We mm-hmm. like to delve into a bit of humor and, and, and look at the lighter side of it because, I mean, life goes on, right? You have to live it or, or not live it. That's your choice. You always have that choice. Once you accept it, then you're able to do something about it. And until you accept it, you can't. And I, With this story, I very much wanted it to be like Ayn Rand says about how good fiction is about showing how man should be and how they ought to be. And I think that's been lost a lot with the way novels, but also especially movies and TV shows, which has been largely controlled by a very leftist ideology, where it's sometimes even difficult to figure out who the good guy and bad guy is anymore. Yes. Um, I mean, a good example is the famous Game of Thrones series, um, both the novels and the TV show, where the the bad guys are almost considered treated like heroes like you, you go into the, I don't see why we have to go into the deepest dark recesses of someone's evil yeah. nature and almost glorify it and try to normalize it and I think this is why we end up with crazy things now where they're almost trying to normalize something like pedophilia yeah it's, it's unbelievable I noticed that you're um, you're a fan of Ayn Rand and when did that happen and how did you fo- discover Ayn Rand Oh, it's kind of weird. I, I found this link to this podcast called Just Right about six years ago. <laughs> really? Seriously? <laughs> yeah, I never heard of Ayn Rand before. And, uh, you know, with the Freedom Party of Ontario I was introduced to uh, the party at the same time. So that was my initial um, introduction to Ayn Rand. And my wife and I got uh, the novels and started... I, actually, she read the novels. That's kind of ironic. I, I haven't actually read Ayn Rand's novels. I ended up reading more of her uh, nonfiction. Mm-hmm. Um, Until I started to. yeah. No, it's well, partly I because um, funny I you're it. a fiction writer. Well, the thing was <laughs> I had such a, a, a young child at the same time, so I was always reading stuff that was at his level. And I don't know. Then I heard just recently you had your daughter read uh, uh, Atlas Shrugged at age twelve. So I guess yeah. I, I was all mess. I should have just read it to him. Anyways, it's definitely on the top of my list. It's a confession. It's like it's one of those horrible things I drag around with me that I haven't read Atlas Shrugged yet. Well. <laughs> it's 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 um it's an interesting book. I've read it I'd say two and a half times. Mm-hmm. It's um a lot of people criticize it because of what it tries to do. It writes uh, it tells a, a narrative from a philosophical point of view and yet it ties it together in a strong in a strong narrative and it certainly reflects what's happening today. I'm actually surprised by how many people out there in um the alternate media are aware of Ayn Rand and are bringing her back into the into the fold, and, and they're they're seeing her as a prophet. And Rand used to always say, "It wasn't my intention to be a prophet; it was my intention to be someone to warn you about what you shouldn't allow to happen." Which sounds a little bit like what George Orwell was trying to say. He says, "Don't let it happen." And increasingly, I feel that we are letting it happen because it happens so subtly, you know. And Part of the inconvenient truth about people is that people get lulled into this thing we call socialism because of the benefits it seems to offer, not realizing that you know the, the, the agency offering that benefit is the government, and the government's a gun. Everything they do is, is at the point of a gun. 
Which is so, what I was trying to show in the novel, too, is like as soon as people started to oppose the COVID mandate, what happens? They pull out guns, right. tasers, right. tasers, and, you know, as the story progresses, there it gets go. even worse. Well, here's Ayn Rand herself speaking on the function of romantic art. And on the return side of our bumper, we're going to be hearing something very unusual. A song called Covidian Lie, as it was performed by John's son, Jonah. And we'll be back right after this. The function of romantic art would be to concretize, to project for you those values which are essential to the proper life of a proper human being. Incidentally, it does not mean that in such a society there would be nothing but romantic art. There may be many schools of art. Only the dominant trend would be in favor of romantic art. People would enjoy that much more than naturalistic studies, certainly more than studies of depravity. But remember, there will be no laws uh, prescribing what art or literature should be. It would be up to the individuals, and you have a wider variety of free viewpoints than you'd have in any other society. Uh, I meant merely to postulate a society in which uh, if not the majority, if not all the members, then the majority, the vast majority of the members do adhere to objective, objectivist principles. Uh, and in that situation, to say that they are, in a sense, living the highest ideals, uh, so that you needn't, uh, you possibly needn't any longer express what might be and ought to be, because it is. Ah, but there is two aspects to the function of art. And the one that you have in mind, uh, although it's involved, is somewhat the lesser aspect, the didactic aspect, the, uh, the role of art in projecting values in the sense of teaching men uh, what an ideal human being or an ideal way of life would be. Art does do that, but that is its minor role, really. The major role is to project the ideal as an end in itself for the purpose of the pleasure of contemplating that ideal. Uh, if any individual then learns from that presentation, that is fine, but as I said, that's the secondary consequence. The primary is the sheer pleasure of contemplation for contemplation's sake, which the better the man, the more he needs it. A man needs the pleasure of contemplating the ideal as an inspiration, as a value, as an experience in itself. And that would be the function of art in an ideal society. A long, long time ago, I can still remember Back before we feared COVID-19 only older people get it Bad enough it makes them die Yet the government says we need a new vaccine Cause the WHO has it their way And we're compelled to disobey They should be disbanded For all bad things they've commanded they knew the PCR test would make it look like there's a nest of COVID-19 in the chests of no 
forget the test. So my, my, this COVIDian lie. Wear a mask when they ask where grandma's going to die. The morgues aren't packed with bodies piled up high. Yet we must all lock ourselves down or we'll die. Don't you think it's time we ask why? They have this PCR test that makes it look like there's a pest. Killing off the human race. The cycle threshold is way too high, and though not many actually die from the virus, they tell us, cover your face. Now the testing labs brought the COVID tide, and the government's told us to stay inside. No more than usual, we're dying. But I'll bet their brains were frying Cause they'd been told something that didn't make sense So their brains put up an electric fence To stop all facts that shows and nonsense Of what they've been told is true So we should be singing my, my, this Covidian lie going to die. The morgues aren't packed with bodies piled up high. Yet we must all lock ourselves down or we'll die. Don't you think it's time we ask why? From Wuhan, China to Regina, there's a lot of death counting mistakes that doctors have been told to make. They say that so many have died Cause during lockdown they went outside When it's more likely that they drowned in the lake Now I hope you know for goodness sake That this pandemic looks pretty fake Not a lot of folks are dying And it looks like the government's lying Cause when someone commits suicide If they had symptoms before they died I have heard of doctors blaming it on COVID It looks like they've been bribed So we should be singing my, my, this COVIDian lie Wear a mask when they ask where grandma's going to die Morgues aren't packed with bodies piled up high Yet we must all lock ourselves down or we'll die Don't you think it's time we ask why? They're coercing us to take a vax That's causing teens to die of heart attacks And I know this sounds insane But it proves that drug companies bite Cause people's heads are sick with blight Cause the vaccine causes blood clots in their brains Now at least 200,000 have died from this crazy thing they've been told to decide That they should put in their bodies Some of them are throwing up in their parties And a university in Spain claims that COVID vax causes pain Cause it's loaded up with graphene oxide A nanoparticle 
that can make you go insane. So we should be singing, my, my, this Covidian lie. Wear a mask when they ask where grandma's going to die. The morgues aren't packed with bodies piled up high. Yet we must all lock ourselves down or we'll die. Don't you think it's time we ask why? Now they've shut down most businesses And they've ruined people's Christmases Ever since 2020 Cause they say we need to slow down spread Or else we'll all be stuck in bed Cause COVID-19 abounds aplenty they say it's not essential to buy shoes, but it is essential to drink booze. So the liquor store is open, but you must go online to do your shopping. But would you rather just watch Netflix and just pretend you're at the age of six and you don't understand that the world's in a plight if the masses don't take up? the fight So we should be singing my, my this Covidian lie Wear a mask when they ask where grandma's going to die The morgues aren't packed with bodies piled up high Yet we must all lock ourselves down or we'll die Don't you think it's time we ask why We should be singing my my, this Covidian lie Wear a mask when they ask where grandma's going to die The morgues aren't packed with bodies piled up high Yet we must all lock ourselves down or we'll die Don't you think it's time we ask why? I have to admit that was an awesome song, <laughs> totally unique, and we are joined in studio by John's son, Jonah. Welcome to the show, Jonah. Hello, Bob. <laughs> whatever, whatever inspired, did you write that song yourself? Yes, with help from my father and, and my mother, too, though Dada, Dada's main um, help was on the rhyming side. I'm... I'm not a great rhymer. <laughs> I might sound like it, but I'm not. No, it came out wonderfully, and I thought it had a great blend of humor and, of course, with a very familiar tune that a lot of people probably already know. And, uh, John, you were saying that it's going to be released, this song? Yeah, on March 11th. And the significance of that date? Is that's when, well, you want to tell them, John? That's <laughs> when uh, the WHO declared the COVID pandemic. Well, they, that was when they declared that COVID was like this big pandemic in, on March 11th, 2020. Because you have to declare something like that because no one would notice <laughs> otherwise. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's pretty much how it felt. No, it was, it was a very entertaining song. And um, before we forget, because our time is rushing by, let's make sure that everybody knows where they can get a copy of this book, how to get how to get it. Do you want to give everybody an insight on that, John? The book's selling everywhere. So it's, I mean, if people want to get it through their local bookstore because they hate Amazon, 
or they think Amazon's a big monster trying to take over the world, which it probably is, um, they can go to any local bookstore. Uh, I'd leave instructions on my website, but you just tell them the name of the book and the author, and they'll have it with, in their bookstore, and I don't know. And, of course, the website is www.blazingpinecone.com. That's correct. Though if they want to go straight to www.muchadoaboutcorona.com, that will bring them right to the section of the website just about the book. Just about the book, yeah. Because they can read and listen to, or listen to me read uh, the prologue in chapter one, so they can just try it out. And I find most of the time when people get to the cliffhanger at the end of chapter one, they want to know what's going to happen mm. next. And we actually just put up a multimedia video production with more illustrations by the cover <laughs> artist. So it's very, uh, with music from a uh, celloist. So it's, it's kind of a neat uh, way to get into the book if you're not, you know, want to give it a try. Otherwise, it's available from Amazon or uh, any of the major retailers online. And it's actually, this is what I'm particularly touched by, is the fact that it's actually appearing in Canadian libraries and American libraries. That's remarkable. How many, so you had a lot of these books pre-printed then? No, it's all print-on-demand. Well, it's printed-on-demand. That's how it's done now. Okay, see, I, I'm not sure how, how, that, how the technicalities of that work. Yeah, it's rather nice because it yeah. gives you a lot of flexibility. Unfortunately, it does put the price of the product up a little, but, um, I mean, but when then someone... you're not stuck with any sort of overflow or underflow. You can order as you go. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's, it's incredible, the speed, especially with Amazon. I can't... I mean, as much as everyone criticizes Amazon, they got their act together... Because um, they, they print it, when you order from Amazon, the paperback version, or of course the Kindle, um, they produce it themselves. Mm-hmm. So when you order it, they don't got it printed. And like, they'll have it in your, they can have it to you in the next day, and it didn't even exist the day before. Right. Um, if you go through the bookstores or get the hardcover, then it's actually um, printed in Pennsylvania with an independent company. So if that's how it's done, how, how does it get into all these other places? They must have ordered it on their own, or they order it through you? Like you say, it's in libraries. Oh, well, with bookstores um, and all the others, they work through the, uh, the company in, in Pennsylvania. So it's still a print-on-demand thing. So if a book, your local book, you go to your local bookstore and ask. I got instructions on the website, but you, they'll just find it in the Ingram catalog, and they'll put in a request. It will be printed in Pennsylvania, shipped to that bookstore. It doesn't matter. Well, actually, that's only if it's in North America. They got other printing uh, sure. stations in Australia and England. But I mean, if you live in Saudi Arabia, they'll get it for you. So, um, uh. and then with the uh, libraries, it's kind of nice in Canada because libraries are required to get a certain number by law of Canadian literature, new Canadian literature, in every year. So the fact my book is falls under Canlit completely because it's written by a Canadian and it's set in Canada. So it's very hard for a library to deny it. Right. So do you see this book ever being made into a movie someday? It seems like perfect material for a movie. I've had so many people say that. Or, or other people want it to be a Netflix series or something like that. No, seriously. I think this would be the vehicle, and it would be a way of, of uh, hooking people in. I mean, you know, grabbed into a story that is almost unsuspecting in a way. You know, it pulls them in almost the way they got pulled in in real life. <laughs> I think so. I mean, it is probably the, you know, if you're really going to um, affect the masses with it, it would work better as a screenplay of some sort. Novels right now are almost like a stepping stone towards that for everybody now. Like, um, for example, the very famous uh, Silo series by Hugh Howey. I don't know if you ever read Wool or... No. It's, it's about a 
set in the future where the human race is confined to these underground silos and they're told that the outside is this wasteland and they can't leave. <laughs> but then they start to find out that maybe it's not a wasteland and they're being lied to. Anyway, that was just a self-published book and um, now it's being produced into a TV series by, I think, Apple. So yeah, It's amazing how that theme spreads through a lot of science fiction. That sounds a little bit like Logan's Run, too, mm-hmm. where they're all living under this dome and uh, everybody wants to escape uh, to some kind of, you know, asylum to get out of there. Uh, now, I understand you're working on a sequel to Much Ado About Coronavirus, and you're calling it Brave New Normal. I think that's a great title for a book. Uh, are you in the middle of that yet? Are you, ex- you know when you're expecting to have it done? or It should be out next year, I'd expect. Hope- maybe this year. Like, um, it was actually... The large degree was already written before this book as a first draft because, as I mentioned before, this was actually flashbacks in that book. Right. It's just the flashbacks became so large, it's like, can't, I can't have 150,000 words of flashbacks. So, <laughs> um, And it may be a trilogy the way it's looking at. And if it is, the third book I'm looking at calling it is uh, Two Gentlemen of Corona. Wow. Continuing the Shakespeare right. twist theme. Right. Um, which, I mean, the next book, well, the story concludes in the year 2030, so it goes from 2020 to 2030. So it's a bit of an epic, bit of an epic story as the way it unfolds. And you plan to finish it before 2030? <laughs> yes. Oh, because yes. uh, I mean, honestly, I'm a little sad because I was actually working on another novel before this, and I had to put it down to when the whole lockdown started because I knew I had to write about this, and I had this other uh, urban fantasy almost completed, and I really want to get back to finishing that novel well you've got a great talent i gotta say and i really appreciate your coming down was there anything else you wanted to add before we wrap up other than like i say uh i say just head on over to much ado about corona.com and you can get a good taste of that and then if you want to uh see more of my son's music and he actually got some pretty incredible theatrical skits and videos it's at jonasworld.net not dot com dot net jonasworld.net and then like I said, on March 11th, the uh, song's going to be available mm-hmm. on iTunes and Bandcamp and all the major right. music sellers. Now, I haven't finished the book. When I saw you were doing a sequel, I'm thinking, oh, is it going to be a, a to be continued? You know, and I'm, am I going to be left hanging? And then I saw this review by Constable Vincent uh, Gersies. Gersies. Of the OPP. I mean, you got a lot of police officers <laughs> recommending this book, and I thought this was an excellent way to wrap up. History will be written to falsely show how our government, quote-unquote, saved us from extinction. Much Ado About Corona slowly brings forward the invisible truth. The novel flows well, has an original story, maintained my attention, and has an unexpected good ending. That was what I wanted to hear. And thank you for joining us, John. And it's great to have Jonah here too. And we hope that the rest of you listening to the show will join us again next week as we continue our journey in the right direction. And until then, be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right, and be right back here. We'll see you then. Fade into color, color into black and white Under the bedclothes Hey, this is a terrific story. Well, thank you. Yeah, it'll be great once it's written. It is written. Look, see? Words and everything. Uh, well, 
Actually, I think you've gotten too involved. A reporter should be more detached, more objective, more skillful. Oh, come on, Murray. I spent a lot of time on this. There must be something worth keeping. Well, this part's not bad about truth, justice, and the American way. Yeah, I thought that part was super. <laughs> but I'd like to help this kid out. Can I take a crack at his story? How about it, Hawk? You won't mind sharing your credit with a professional, will you? No, he can have all the credit. That's not important to me. I'm in medicine. You better be. Your writing makes people sick. 